This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 18th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The history of American foreign policy since the 1940s is one of over-exaggerated threats, needless and costly foreign interventions, and the threats we face today are relatively small and manageable. That's the conclusion of Cato's John Mueller in his new book, The Stupidity of War. We spoke last week. Well, the the book basically sort of a biography of the idea that people have come to think it is stupid. Uh, before World War One, it was very common for people to talk about how glorious and wonderful and beautiful and uplifting and progressive war was, and how decadent, horrible uh, peace was. Uh, my favorite statement about it is somebody calling peace as bovine content, crass materialism, rampant effeminacy, and so forth. And so even though war had been around for a very long time, and even though it had been stupid for an extremely long time, uh, it was not really very much appreciated. But after World War I, that really changed. And during the, at least for wars between states and other international wars. Is that because World War I was so very pointless? Uh, no. If you want to find pointless wars, <laughs> uh, and you don't start in 1914, you go back about two or three centuries. I mean, I started out the book talking about the Greek, the Greek uh, Trojan War, which was fought over an errant wife, lasted 10 years, uh, and ended up with the annihilation of an entire city-state. Uh, and the whole reason for that was that, uh, that, that this woman had left her, her husband and ran off with a, with a uh, Trojan prince. Um, so that's got to be pretty stupid. And so people, I think, have realized it. But it really didn't enter their consciousness or really be, become consensual, I think, until after World War I. World War I is also very destructive, obviously, but there have been plenty of destructive wars. If you ask the citizens of Troy, after which everybody was either killed or sold into slavery uh, and the city was burned to the ground, they'd say that's pretty total. So it wasn't new in that sense. So in the 20th century, we essentially saw the end of, uh, as you described them in your book, imperial and colonial wars and international wars um, and holding steady and even increasing somewhat um, civil wars with outside intervention. W when we think of what a civil war with outside intervention is, at least in, in the context of American um, United States being that outside intervention, what does that look like? Or, or, or which of these wars do we characterize that way? They're characterized as civil wars with outside intervention, which is like Syria, obviously, or uh, like Yemen currently, disastrously. So there have been a fair number of those, but actual wars, international wars, causing at least a thousand battle deaths per year have almost vanished. There's only been two in this century, one both by the United States when they went after Saddam Hussein and when they went after um, the, uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan. And then, of course, those devolved into wars of occupation. Um, and um, since World War II in particular, um, Europe has been re remained free from international war, a substantial international war for the longest period of time since the word Europe was invented about 2,500 years ago. And it's the most important, interesting discontinuity in military, in military history, war history. Uh, and since that time, other countries, there have been a fair number of international wars, particularly early in, in the period after World War II, outside of Europe, but these have declined as well. So as I mentioned, there's only been two in this whole, we've been, you know, we're a fifth of the way through the 21st century. Um, and uh, there's only been those two that I mentioned. 
So there, it's it's not that it, everybody's sweet and lovely and they love each other, but basically they don't use war as a method of solving their problems. Instead, they do other things. Potentially, they do some nasty things like intervening in other people's civil wars. There's some mild snatching of little territories around the world here and there. People apply economic sanctions, um, propaganda, uh, various incursions with the internet and stuff, uh, but they don't go to war. Leaving aside for a moment uh, America's longest war in Afghanistan, um, we see uh, a China's rise recently and our mo- two most recent presidential candidates trying to outhawk each other on China. Uh, we've seen uh, Russia that has decided not to go quietly into the night uh, and instead try to uh, mess with uh, other countries with varying results. And of course, uh, Iran, which our uh, most recent former president uh, made maximum pressure a major part of his foreign policy. So, uh, you know, to the people who are the war hawks, uh, what do you say about these countries? Well, they basically fit my point. Uh, one of the things, that the main thing that Russia did was basically taking over over Crimea. And uh, Obama even said at that time, and opposed it, he, of course, very much opposed it, but he said, I'd like anybody who wants to go to war to stop this to stand up right now in Washington, and no one stood up. In other words, they were not willing to do anything about it, not really go to war with it. Whereas in previous centuries, that would be a standard uh, reason you'd go to war. Um, in the in the in the in the case of China, I've been I'm doing a lengthy paper. There's a section in the book on it, on it of course, and, and there's also I'm doing a lengthy paper for Cato as well on it about policy analysis. And, it's, and you look at people; what they prescribe is, well, we got to get our own act together. Uh, we have to worry about them. They might steal our secrets. Um, they've uh, they've weapon they've they've uh, made some islands in the South China Sea into bases and so forth. Uh, but there's and there's sanctions and so forth. So there's so there's definitely an hostility, uh, and we have to be more competitive, and that's the big thing. Well, okay, being more competitive is not the same thing as dropping bombs. So when I say that everything, I'm not saying everything is cherubic by any means. There are plenty of conflicts and contests, but they're not being carried out at the military level between states. An analogy would might be with dueling, uh, which a formal dueling, which is around around for a long time and it went out of fashion. At the end of the 19th century, um, we still have young men of that same class, um, and they uh, they still have the same testosterone levels, and they say they worry about their own being dis- uh, disrespected and so forth. But they don't even think about fighting a duel over it. They may punch a guy in the nose, or they may uh, down you know they may say nasty things behind his back and so forth and call them names, but they don't go they don't they don't do dueling. They just in the way of solving the problem. And in many respects, that's what's happening with war. The idea of killing as many people in the other country in order to solve your own problems or solving a mutual problem uh, is simply not something that recommends itself. You may use pressure. You may use sanctions. You may use propaganda. Uh, you may use uh, uh, incursions through the web or whatever, uh, uh, cyber t- attacks, uh, but you don't use military warfare. We basically just don't have very many international wars anymore. To the extent that uh, the United States ought to shift away from uh, its footing of being prepared to fight simultaneous wars around the planet with uh, arms and and boots on the ground, what should the United States be doing in terms of preparing for what 
I, I think you would say is, is sort of a new age. Well, that, that, that's right. The key thing is that if that if I'm right about that, the decline of the international war, it means there are quite a few things that come from it. And one of them is that you just don't need to be heavily armed. The United States is wildly overarmed. And basically, what uh, in the book, what I tried to do, I've written a lot about uh, around about um, uh, uh, ten, uh, 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 threats and so forth, accepted threats. And it's I, I use basically a um, um, uh, a, a generalization by uh, Newt Gingrich, which I some who I sometimes call Saint Newt in this respect. He said our our defenses should not be a matter of uh, playing games. Our defenses should be a matter of realizing how much threat we have, and then re- uh, pl- replying to it. Needless to say, Newt um, on his other side does find a lot of threats, but I don't. Uh, there basically is not a real threat of military action from Russia or China or Iran. There's things around the corner. The 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 incursions with Iran recently, for example, um, you know they 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 blow up an American base or try to, and then the United States bashes and one of them and so forth. One of the things the United States doesn't do is go to war with Iran. It, nonetheless, there's some military fracases. By the way, there's been quite a few places since World War II in which small territories have been taken by neighboring countries, in other words, over border disputes. But uh, there's a guy named uh, Altman at the Georgia State University who's looked at these very carefully and finds that what's different is not that there aren't border incursions, but when there are border incursions, they're done extremely carefully to avoid getting into a war. Uh, so you, you nip off a little bit of territory and sort of hang on to it. People, the other country gets mad. There may be some shooting across the borderline and so forth, but, but it doesn't escalate to war. So that's the difference. It's not that things are nice. It's just that uh, the one major device, like dueling in the old days for, for young men, uh, is no longer in the repertory, pretty much. Uh, we glossed over Afghanistan, but of course, the, the war that the United States is still engaged in in Afghanistan was a reaction to uh, terrorism. Um, to what extent has our long war in Afghanistan, to what extent was that an overreaction? Um, massively. Uh, the, 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 neither Taliban nor Saddam Hussein, for that matter, had anything to do with 9-11. Well, what was, the, what was the appropriate response? Appropriate response would have been work with the, with, uh, to go after al-Qaeda. That's perfectly understandable. And what he could have done is work with uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, and in particular with the two countries that were the, about the only ones that paid much attention to the Taliban and supported them, namely Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan to go after the to go after Al Qaeda, uh, that would have been that would involved working with other countries, with working with some ordinary policing methods. I mean, you know, the, the uh, terrorists blew up at, uh, an a, a airliner over Lockerbie, Scotland, and the effort from that was policing. Go after the guys who did it, maybe from, presumably from Libya, uh, or uh, it was not to start a, start a war. So I think that war is incredibly foolish. And then once it once it was over. And then, of course, the Taliban started to come back. The United States found itself mired in this long war of occupation. The same thing that happened in, in, in uh, Iraq. Uh, you quote two former counterterrorism officials from the Obama administration, Jenny Easterly and Joshua Geltzer. Uh, they write, so long as human nature yields a reaction to terrorism that shakes domestic politics, redirects foreign policy and upends regional stability, terrorism demands our attention. Of course, so does the quite explicit expectation of the American public that its government protect it from the form 
from this form of deliberately targeted violent death in particular, whereas the American public has expressed no such concern about the accidental perils of the bathtub. Right. I, I actually written an article about comparing terrorism to bathtubs. That was on my website if you want to take a look at it. Uh, basically, they, they, they want to be safe. And I think they've been they've been vastly exaggerated the degree to which they were uh, uh, at risk. Nine uh, Eleven uh, stands out as um, by far the worst terrorist attack in all of history, in war zones or out, out outside of war zones. It's the total destructiveness about ten times greater than the number two. So it, at the time, of course, you didn't know that, uh, but that has basically come to be the case. And, and I, I, as I say, going after al-Qaeda doesn't mean going after uh, the Taliban. The Taliban, in fact, had very bad relations with al-Qaeda. Uh, and the Saudi Saudis were trying to get Osama bin Laden out because, um, you know, Osama bin Laden hated three things. He hated, he hated Jews, he hated Christians or, or crusaders, and he hated the Saudi regime. And the Saudi regime really wanted to have him in the slammer. And they're trying to get, even though they were, they were a sugar daddy for the Taliban, were not able to get him out uh, earlier, but they might have been after 9-11 with the cooperation of uh, uh, what Osama bin Laden did was when he came to Afghanistan, he promised not to do stuff like that to the Taliban. He said, OK, you can live here with your wives and, you know, and, have, and, and, uh, and uh, give us money and be ch charitable and, uh, and religious and so forth. But you can't do terrorism. You can't do the threat of terrorism. And of course, he went against that. So after 9-11, uh, they, were, they were infuriated, and you could work with that. I might add, by the way, that the invasion of Afghanistan did not get bin Laden. Right? So if that's the idea was to get bin Laden, they didn't get it in that invasion, and it's extreme cost. And it should be pointed out that like a couple hundred thousand people have died in that war as a result. What does war enable beyond that? I know there's been a lot written about uh, how war enables other bad policy uh, at the federal government level. Uh, but what does war give us in terms of domestic politics? Well, it gives us a lot of concentration on a foreign enemy and so forth, uh, but we don't need it. <laughs> uh, it's basically, war is basically sort of an, something that's added. It's, it's not required by human nature. Uh, it's not required by the international system. It's uh, any more than dueling was, right? I mean, before that, everybody dual dueling was a big thing. Everybody knows about it. It's still in all those old novels and, and ballets and operas. Um, but it doesn't happen anymore. Uh, important people like um, Alexander Hamilton were killed with them and, and others, many others. Uh, and so somebody said, that's really stupid. Let's not do that anymore. And they didn't. Uh, young men, it, 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 and, and that's basically, I think, happening with war. It doesn't give as much of anything. Um, it is really very stupid. Um, and gradually people said, let's not do that anymore, any more than we did dueling, any more than we needed slavery, for example, as well. Another master institution did simply formal slavery, which still doesn't, which, which isn't there anymore. The stories uh, surrounding the Cuban Missile Crisis are sort of these breathless tales of um, how close the United States got to uh, a thermonuclear exchange. Uh, but, you know, broadly during the Cold War, how close was the United States to being engaged in, uh, you know, significantly devastating hostilities? I think basically never. Um, it's quite clear. It's quite clear during the Cold War, but it's certainly clear after the Cold War. Going back over the documents, 
that the Soviet Union never in a billion gajillion years wanted to get into anything that even remotely resembled World War II. They, they did have a hostile agenda, which involved encouraging civil wars uh, for the right people, for their, the people they want to encourage, and also class warfare. No question about that. But that's not an international war. Uh, and it, 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 basically, there are no documents in the Soviet archives which show them starting a war. They're willing to defend themselves if NATO attacked. So there was really no real danger at any time. They didn't, in other words, they didn't have to be deterred. There was nothing to deter them from. Uh, they went through the massive devastation um, and uh, of World War II, and they didn't want to do that again. One of the few people during the Cold War who really realized this, I, I found out rather surprisingly, was Dwight David Eisenhower. And he seems to have been really impressed uh, right after World War II, when the war in Europe ended in 1945, he then flew to Moscow to have a consultation with Stalin. Then on the way back, his plane, plane flew, flew low enough so he could look out the window and see the ground. And all the way, it was total devastation. And it's really, they don't, you know, <laughs> and, you know, they don't want to do that again. And then he'd meet them, like at Geneva, say, these guys don't want to go to war, for God's sake. And he said very pathetically at one time, we don't know about for anything to provide for our security except building up a bunch of these stupid weapons. He didn't use the word stupid. He did he used, did use the word stupid about war. War is one of the stupidest things man, mankind has ever done. Um, and, so, and so when the Cuban Missile Crisis came uh, and other crises, uh, Khrushchev was willing to play the crisis game, but he was not willing to push it to anything that would be really beyond atmospherics in many respects. And he was willing to be humiliated, so it's John Kennedy, um, if necessary. Uh, to get out of that crisis, so I don't think they're anywhere near it. Even if even if there'd been some, you know, there would uh, a U uh, two spy plane was shot down over Cuba, American U two spy spy plane, and the plan was had been if it was shot down, they would then retaliate by attacking bases in Cuba, not with nuclear weapons or anything. And when it did happen, people sort of shrugged and said, "Well, you know, we won't do it." So even when there was a, 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 a stimulation of some sort. Uh, a cause uh, it wasn't acted on, and that that holds for other other times in there. There's a submarine, uh, which uh, commander it's a Soviet submarine commander who is supposedly going to use a depth charge. I mean, use a, a torpedo because he felt he was under attack. And I've looked into that very carefully, and it just seems that there was no chance that that would actually happen. Uh, there was a guy in the, in the submarine who was who slept with the, the torpedo. So maybe Doctor Strange love isn't as strange as you think, um, and uh, he, he would not, he was orders were that he would never allow that weapon to be used unless he got direct orders from Moscow, and there were no direct orders from Moscow, so he never would it anyway. So it, it just seems that the hysteria and stuff, the uh, you know, brinksmanships and, and so forth, um, is basically is good to sell books, but it's not very realistic. On the Trump administration watch, we had a pretty significant and, and as far as we know, perhaps ongoing attack from uh, probably Russian uh, agents into the depths of the, the U.S. government and uh, many corporate entities. It's, it's still not clear how uh, big of a problem this hack will ultimately be. Uh, so when we, when we think about war uh, and the stupidity of war, uh, this kind of attack seems like a, you know, doing it on the cheap. That's right. I, I just got the way I put it. It's a poor man's form of war. They used to say that about terrorism until 
But in this case, basically, they can't do much of anything so we can get inside and sort of slake things around. Um, that's going to go on. Uh, the United States is probably doing more of it overseas than anybody's doing it to the United States. Um, and as long as you've got interconnections and you have Internet and you have uh, potentially uh, um, computer systems and, and uh, communications that can be compromised, people will be trying to do it. In other words, it's sort of an extension of sabotage, of which there's been virtually none, um, uh, of, uh, and of propaganda, of which there's been some. And all the evidence from 2016, by the way, indicates that the, Chinese, that the Russian efforts were, uh, in terms of the election, were trivial. Um, and that, and there, there's also a certain amount of espionage, trying to steal secrets. The best evidence, there's a good PA by uh, policy analysis report just out now by uh, Iran, by Alex, uh, talking about um, sabotage and espionage, and it mostly doesn't work very well. It's better to build it on your own. Um, so the attacks, you know, when you say that we don't know what they did, I'd like to find out what they did. You know, if someone tries to handle it on my front door, I say, and it's locked, and they go away. I've been attacked, but I've not really been harmed very much. And um, if they need get into computer systems, uh, then the people with the computer system should worry about it. Um, an example would be, obviously, if you want to attack anybody, the people who attack are banks and credit card companies. Um, and they have to, obviously, everybody's been trying to attack banks and credit card companies from ever since they were invented. Uh, bank robbery is probably the oldest crime. You know, <laughs> The only thing they had to wait for is banks to exist, and then they started attacking them. Um, and the record on that is pretty limited uh, success by the terrorists, by the, by the attackers. So, for example... A few years ago, uh, someone published two numbers for about, I think it was 2015 or 2016, how much money had been lost in cyber attacks and how many attacks there were. So I had this weird idea about dividing one into the other and said, for every successful cyber attack, how much money did they make? It came out to be about $160, which is what you can make, you know, working at McDonald's for a couple of days. And if you got two, three people doing it, you have to split it up. Uh, and, and so there, there really isn't very much money in it. One final example on that, it was credit card companies. Uh, obviously, people are trying to defraud credit card companies all the time. And the credit card companies obviously have big defensive measures, and they have to keep up with the game, and they've done it. So what's, what's happened is that the amount of money that credit card companies pay to replace stolen credit cards is higher than the amount they actually pay the people who stole them. So their big, big expense is simply replacing credit cards, not in uh, huge amounts of embezzled uh, funds. John Mueller is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. His latest book is The Stupidity of War. If you're a teacher or an administrator, apply today for Sphere Summit, Teaching Civic Culture Together 2021. Sphere Summit is a full scholarship professional development program for educators of grades 5 through 12, summit will explore the restoration of a spirit of civil, constructive, and respectful discourse in the classroom. Visit cato.org sphere for more information.